welcome to the very first episode of our brand new podcast, Let's Get Fiscal. And on our show, we will be discussing all things economics with professionals specialising in a range of topics. So let's get started. So recently, volatility in the financial markets have led many investors to feel concerned about the future of stocks, while central bankers are more concerned with its macroeconomic impact on the broader economy. Some people have questioned whether share prices are overvalued or whether this could affect currencies, especially in the unconventional cryptocurrency market. Today we're joined by finance and macroeconomic expert Mr Davis, who can hopefully provide some insight into what's been going on. Mr Davis has been studying the financial economy for many years and has worked with international banks to advise them on the macroeconomy. So Mr Davis, what are we currently seeing in the financial markets? Seeing a market that's been hugely distorted as we come out of COVID, um, the, the big, uh, the big, the big um, distortion in the market was the, the full collapse of uh, world economies um, just over a year ago, and then the, the monetary authorities and the governments having to step in and provide fiscal support um, within all those economies and also continued monetary support via quantitative easing. So we've got um, a, a very unstable market which is supported by loose money and cheap money. Do you think that might affect the stock prices, like share prices? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I would say that with all that excess money um, in the system, which was initially um, pumped into the system via QE in order to help support the general economy, a lot of it has found its way into financial assets. And the, the key mechanism for that is really they've um, manipulated interest rates to virtually zero or negative rates in, in a lot of the major economies. Um, and that means the valuation, which methodology for working out what shares are worth, has inflated their value based on interest rates, which are virtually zero. Um, it also means that people have been buying assets such as shares uh, and bonds because there is very little else to buy mm. in that size of uh, required investment where they can put their money and get any return. You can't put your money into a bank, otherwise you get effectively zero or negative interest rates. So most people who are looking for investments have got a choice to put it into stocks, bonds or other investments like uh, property markets, for example. And it, more and more money has been funneled into more and more um, areas of investment where there are big risks of, uh, should we say, downside in prices. We also seen quite a lot um, in the stock market about inflation as well. And recently, especially like over the past week and two weeks, uh, share prices have actually declined. And a lot of people have attributed that to inflation fears. But why would stock markets care about inflation in the first place? Um, stock markets care about inflation because if, if inflation starts to pick up, what is the one way of curing inflation that the, the monetary authorities have? And that's raising interest rates. Mm. So we, we'll be going from a situation where we've got interest rates of zero or negative, and then the next situation further down the road, they will become higher positive interest rates. That does a huge amount of damage to financial investments that are currently priced, assuming an interest rate of near zero. So it means, for example, stock prices, particularly tech stock prices, will be very vulnerable to a quick sell-off. 
and more importantly, bond market prices will be um, uh, liable to, to collapse very quickly because they are all assuming we have zero inflation or near zero inflation for a long time. And if we're suddenly saying inflation is going to be 5%, you don't want to hold a bond that has a yield of 1% for 10 years. You want to sell it and everyone will sell at the same time. So it will cause a collapse in bond prices. So, so leading on from that, we're still staying on the topic of inflation. Why do you think that we're suddenly seeing concerns about too much inflation when over the past decade, globalisation and um, the technology advancing has arguably led to too little inflation? It has. And what's happening is we're coming to the end of that process. So the, the globalisation led to um, a, a reduction in the pressures of price increases. We saw ever cheaper products produced, particularly out of China. China was the big catalyst in this. So lower and lower manufacturing prices, which we imported. So we had low imported inflation. We could buy better and better products at cheaper and cheaper prices. Look at the, look at the price of your computing. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a fraction of the cost of 20 years ago and probably 50 times more powerful for a fraction of the cost. That's all part of the China and the technology effect. That has run its course. Chinese people uh, and their economy, their incomes are growing. There's no longer cheap Chinese labor. So uh, uh, they have inflation uh, starting to pick up in China. Um, so we, we, we're no longer gonna have prices getting ever lower. Current situation as well, as we recover from COVID, economies are starting to bounce back. So all the projects last year, which were put on hold, like building projects, just uh, developing new factories, car factories, everything stopped and now it's about to start and they all require raw materials. So raw material bottlenecks are driving prices up. So we've seen things like um, timber for building, uh, iron ore, virtually every commodity price has gone up significantly. So inflation is visible and it's there on the horizon and it's obvious in very specific sectors of the economy and it's not going to go away in the next year. We are seeing um, vert, you know, building prices for houses in America have gone up by about 10% purely because of the rise in the price of the timber used in them. So that is yeah. from an inflation environment where we had inflation of one, one and a half percent to suddenly 10% increases in certain commodities impacting big parts of the economy. That's going to bring inflation. It's going up. Over the past few days, we have heard from like various financial institutions who have been sharing their opinion on the current economic climate. Like on one hand, you have the Bank of England's governor, Andrew Bailey, and he's been saying that inflationary fears are essentially unwarranted and that he thinks any inflation exceeding the 2% target would be temporary. But then on the other hand, you have economic reports from massive global banks like Goldman Sachs, and they're basically saying that inflation could become a serious problem. So Mr. David, what are your thoughts on inflation? And do you think that the Bank of England is only trying to downplay the risk of inflation to try to calm the financial markets? No, I don't think they are trying to downplay it. I think there is a difference in opinion. We've had a difference in opinion as to the path of inflation for the last 10 years since we started QE. When QE quantitative easing started, um, half the economists said, you're increasing the money supply vastly, that will lead to inflation. The other half of the economist world said, no, it won't cause inflation. After 10 years of QE, we haven't got inflation. But it's now we are seeing some inflation in the system caused by commodity prices. So we are going to see, because we measure inflation by the price of stuff we buy, 
in the shops, we are going to see that increase. There is no doubt, and it's not it's not due to QE. It might be partly due to excessive demand being put into the hands of people through um, cash injections into the economy, through furlough schemes, for uh, examples like that. People have been saving more while they've been um, uh, isolated at home are now starting to consume. There are bottlenecks which are causing prices to rise. All the container ships are in the wrong part of the world. So the, the costs of container shipping have gone up fivefold in the last year. That feeds through into the price of everything. So we are going, we are going to see inflation. The key thing about inflation is if prices rise this year by 10%, because all the commodities have gone up by 10%, what happens next year? You then start from that point next year. So the following year's inflation, does that mean they'll go up another 10%? No, probably not. If that is as far as prices go, and we then start increasing supply, prices will not increase from that level at the same rate. So inflation might drop back down to one or 2%. The problem is if you get inflation inbuilt into the system, so people expect it to happen, they then might ask for wage rises. And that builds in inflation into the system. So we've got you've got to distinguish between demand push um, and sorry, demand pull and cost push inflation. There are two types of inflation at work. We are seeing wage rises in certain parts of the economy. There are shortages of people in the UK in pubs, restaurants, whatever. A lot of workers have disappeared or have isolated at home. They haven't come back yet. Shortages of builders all around the country. Shortages in, in large parts of America in certain jobs, and that's going to cause wage inflation as well. So we, we are building up inflationary pressure, but it might not last. And the authorities want it to be about 2%, and they don't care if it goes above 2% for a short period of time. But do you think maybe the Bank of England it could believe that inflation would go up? But like you said, they could try to pretend that inflation isn't such a big problem to that. It doesn't lead to that wage price spiral. Yes, about. there is an element of that. They, if they thought there was a risk of a wage price spiral, they would be doing something about it. They're not concerned yet because, as you know from your economic conflicts and macro objectives, what, trying to control inflation might have impacts on unemployment, for example. At the moment, the big concern is there's a, still a lack of demand. We haven't got the economy firing on all cylinders. We've still got a massive output gap. We've still got unemployment, which is likely to rise further. As people start coming back into an economy which is working again, a lot of the companies which have paid their staff to, through furlough funds to stay on the books might decide, well, the business isn't going to proceed anymore. And now the government's no longer paying furlough, I'll get rid of, I'll close down, I'll get rid of my staff. So we're probably going to see more upward pressure on unemployment. And voters aren't concerned about inflation yet because it hasn't quite hit. They're more concerned about unemployment, jobs, things like that. When inflation starts coming through into petrol prices, engineering, uh, sort of uh, gas prices, electricity prices, uh, going down to the shop to buy your, your your hardware goods, that goes up. Then people will start to get will start to notice it, but that is slightly uh, in the future rather than now. You said that the people aren't fully aware of the effects of inflation on the economy yet. Can you just out, sort of outline them for our listeners? Well, you, what prices have you noticed rising? Um, 
I've noticed you know, the old food price rising a little bit, um, but that's been, that's been in trend for the last um, year or so. We possibly hit rock bottom prices a couple of years ago, just before COVID hit, you know, we were, inflation was bubbling along at around about one and a half percent. There was no sign of it was going, going lower. Oil prices had collapsed. Uh, as we know famously, they went negative for, for, for a moment last year and were around about sort of $30, $40 level per barrel for a long time. They're now up at about $68 a barrel. So that's a, that's a 50% increase in the oil price in, in, in over the last year. Oil is out, one of our biggest imports. So we will see that petrol prices are near nearer their all-time high than their recent lows, I would say at the moment. Talking about 100 or pound 30 for a litre of petrol. The top top price I remember was about one one pound 45. So we're, we're getting close to um, high levels, and we haven't really had yet the commodity price bubble feeding into the UK economy yet, but it, it is coming. So surely, where the inflation is like two percent or five percent, surely that doesn't really make much difference to the lives of ordinary people. So why should that really be a concern? It does make it does make a difference actually. It's a good question. You think, okay, the difference between 2%, 5% is not a lot. But remember the way that it's calculated, that is the, the basket average price. So you're calculating inflation's 5%. Does every good go up by 5%? No, a lot of goods will go up by zero. But if you're heating um, fuel, and your petrol goes up by 20% within that basket of goods, then you notice it. And you'll find that um, political headlines and voters most notice when food prices go up, basic food prices, um, which have been generally quite stable over, over recent years, or when your cost of petrol, diesel, and gas and electricity go up. Those are the ones which really hit the voters and more, people are more worried about that. And that's when you will start to hear people complaining. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, so moving away from the talk of inflation now into cryptocurrencies. So, I mean, not just, it's not just stocks and shares which are affected by this volatility, though perhaps for a different reason. Recently, we've seen the value of Bitcoin fall 37% against the US dollar in the space of less than even a month. Many traditional investors have basically been saying that Bitcoin was overvalued in the first place. And... There is some credibility to that claim too. When you look at the role that Elon Musk, for example, has played to influence Bitcoin's value, it's, almost, it's probably quite likely that Bitcoin's $60,000 valuation is unrealistic, especially given that almost all retailers don't accept Bitcoin as a form of payment. So what can you explain what actually is happening with Bitcoin? Uh, first of all, the volatility um, is nothing new with Bitcoin. It's, it's, it's as volatile now as it's ever been in the last four years, but it's the same level of volatility that we have seen in the last four years. Uh, I remember when Bitcoin first really hit the headlines and it went from $3,000 up to $20,000 in a very short period of time and then back down to $3,000 in an equally short period of time. It's probably, but it's, the big jump really was going from zero to $3,000 over a period of um, a, a couple of years. So the volatility has always been there. When it's, it, what we're doing now is we notice the volatility because it's making mainstream headlines, the front of your paper, BBC, uh, things like that. That's when we notice it. But it's no more volatile than it has been. True, it's at a higher price than it's ever been. 
and people are thinking, oh, buyer, it's gone from zero to $60,000. Wow, it's full. And that's sucking in a lot of amateur investors, people wanting to get rich quick. And now a lot of sophisticated bankers are seeing if something can move in that sort of range and with that sort of uh, chance of making money, it's maybe worth getting involved in to make money from. Very few people think Bitcoin is the answer to any anything. Uh, somebody I read recently said, you know, what problem does Bitcoin solve? Bitcoin doesn't solve any problem, so why don't we need it? However, it is, um, whether it's worth anything or not is, is, is open to debate. Um, Jamie Dimon, who heads JP Morgan, the, the biggest American bank, said four or five years ago when Bitcoin was at um, $20,000, he said it's actually worth zero. It's got no intrinsic value. It has, it, it's a line of code. It doesn't really have an intrinsic value that you can then use for anything else because, you, as you said, you can't buy things with it in many places. However, since he said that, it's, it's gone up to $60,000. So was he right? Is it worth anything? It may, it may go down to zero one day. We may find that, wake up one day and think, this is really silly. What's it all about? Um, the bottom line is, there are only ever going to be, I think, 21 million of them ever made, according to the, the, the current uh, sort of contracts which, um, and algorithms which create them. It'll be finite supply. And you know if you uh, get increased demand and a finite supply, a fixed supply, the price will go up. So they could go ever higher. But ultimately, the people who are buying them are only buying them to sell someone who will pay them a higher price. This is exactly what happened with tulip mania in the 1600s, the dot-com bubble. An awful lot of people buying it just to sell to someone at a higher price, not because it has any other value. And so the, the jury's still out on where it will end up. I suspect it will go higher at some point. Um, but the authorities are starting to clamp down. The Chinese have said they no longer want will allow exchangeability, I think, in China. Iran yesterday said they're going to ban Bitcoin mining in Iran. The Chinese authorities have asked people to start informing the authorities if you think there's anyone mining Bitcoin near you. It's going to be clamped down big time. Um, and we've talked about how much electricity is used in, in, in basically creating it. It's a, it's a market failure, frankly. So Mr. Davis, do you think that there is a place for Bitcoin in the future as a form of a recognised currency that is widely available to most people? No. No? No need for it. It doesn't solve a problem. What, what's useful is the, the blockchain, which is the code which is, is, is relatively unhackable that is behind it, the idea. The actual thing of having a currency, supposed currency, based on that is not needed. You could write, you could have a, a pound-based blockchain. And that's where the way the authorities are going. The Chinese are now creating, looking into creating their own digital currency. Other central banks are doing the same. If a major country creates a digital currency, all the other current countries will also create them as well at some point. In which case, you don't need Bitcoin. Why do you need a Bitcoin? What's the point? It, ultimately, we're saying, well, Bitcoin's like money. It's not. Money doesn't lose 30% of its value in one day and then gain 30% back the next day. It doesn't happen. And it does that regularly. That it's not a store of value, a Bitcoin. It, it, but it will, I think it'll probably survive because anything which goes up and down in price and makes winners and losers and financial gambling will survive. What function does a roulette wheel serve? None. 
people still play roulette wheels because they can make a lot of money out of it. It's exact, there's no difference. If you think that, um, that there's no need for Bitcoin, would you perhaps say also that there's no need for like a digital pound or like a digital yuan as well? Technically, there's no reason why we can't continue on as we are in with what we've got. We've got, um, we've, we're actually getting rid of cash when you think about it. We've, we're actually becoming just a, a digital, um, almost a digital currency anyway with contactless payments. Uh, I haven't taken money out of the bank for, I've, I think, on one occasion in the last 15 months. Okay, so we don't use cash anymore. So what we're doing is really just doing contact, contactless payments. The, the, the actual digital currency bit really is no more than just a bookkeeping entry based on complex codes that can't be hacked. It's not that different to what we've got at the moment, except the codes we use can be hacked. Okay. So if we can move to more of a, a blockchain type thing where we've got a public ledger that people can't understand and break into and it's anonymous, it, that will have a lot of effects, which mean we don't actually really need Bitcoin. There are 2,000 alternatives to Bitcoin out there which are quite similar. Um, which one do you pick? Do you pick them all? Do you have them all? Is there any value in any of them? The, value, the, the reason Bitcoin gets headlines it's the most valuable in terms of the absolute price, the total value of the Bitcoin universe, and the fact that people are buying and selling it, trading it, because it's a volatile instrument. They're trading volatility, nothing more, frankly. I also agree with you. I don't think that Bitcoin really has a $60,000 uh, valuation, but traditional economics typically says that financial markets are highly efficient at valuing things like currency, stock, shares, bonds, all other financial instruments. So why do you think that conventional economic theory has broken down here? Hasn't broken down. It's, uh, the, price is, the price of Bitcoin, um, if I said to you, draw a graph to demonstrate why the price of Bitcoin is at £60,000, you would draw me a supply and demand diagram. Yeah. Um, so supply is fairly static and the demand shifts up and down. That's what it is. It's no, it, it hasn't broken down. It's supply and demand on the day. Everything has a value. It's no more silly than people paying uh, $69 million to say they own the certificate of ownership for a digital work of art by Beeple. You know, I can go and access that digital art and look at it for free. Okay, so it cost me zero. The person who paid $69 million for it, I can look at that same bit of art, it's a digital code, I can look at it on his computer screen. He owns that, he's got that, he's got the same view as me, but he's paid $69 million for a certificate saying, I actually own it, a non-fungible token. There's no, there's no difference between his experience and my experience of that work of art. He's paid $69 million to say, I'm the owner. Somebody else might pay him $70 million to say, oh, I want to be the owner now. It's like having a, it's not even like having a rare stamp because there actually is a finite supply. There's an infinite supply of visibility for this thing. But um, basically there's too much money sloshing around the system, surplus cash. People have got very rich. Those very rich people are putting their money in all sorts of things. And the reason why Bitcoin has taken off so much is because everything else yields 1% if you buy a government bond or very little if you buy a share. There's a lot of surplus cash people are now putting money into Bitcoin because they've got so much money and they're spreading their risk, putting it into other assets.
and now it's worth a lot, it's more sensible to put money in. When it was at a low value, it wasn't a sensible asset class, but now it's an asset class to put money in. So taking it back to the volatility of cryptocurrencies, mm -hmm. what can actually be done to tackle these issues of volatility if, if they even are a problem? So in the wake of the financial crisis in 2008-2009, yeah. we've seen government intervention into finance expand. Perhaps the most notable being the creation of the Financial Conduct Authority in 2013 mm. to oversee the markets. Do you think that more government intervention is the solution to yeah. this problem? Yeah, it's, 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 we're seeing it already. So first of all, remember Bitcoin was actually created as a response to the financial crash. Um, and the guy who invented it um, did it as uh, saying, look what's happened with the old system. We've got bank failures and the whole system's bust we need a new way of doing things. That's, that was where Bitcoin came from. Uh, the volatility and it's impacting um, financial markets in general. Yeah, last time, last week was the first time that really the volatility in the Bitcoin market has been referenced by central banks as a concern, uh, or oh, sorry, not central banks, but, but uh, by commentators as a concern that it was feeding into and destabilizing existing markets. So the day of the massive volatility in Bitcoin, when it dropped 30% and then rose 30%, that caused a sell-off in the um, US equity markets and then a recovery. So that small tail was wagging the big dog, as, as we would say. And that's the first time that's happened and has been referenced. So now the authorities are, they have some concern that there are a lot of people are getting sucked into buying Bitcoin and are going to lose a lot of money. I've had two stories in the last 12 hours from people who are friends of friends referencing their friends who have lost money investing in Bitcoin in the last um, you know, very short period of time. And the reason they got invested in Bitcoin, they got easy money and they've lost their money. That's two people I've been told that in the last 12 hours. So it, it is gathering, gathering sort of more awareness and risk. And the authorities are cracking down. So we've said what China's doing. China's got a very specific agenda, but is, is the first. If it gets too destabilizing, the, the, the US and the UK authorities and the Europeans will step in as well. They, they won't allow it to become too big a problem. In general, with stocks being so volatile, do you think maybe perhaps attacks on financial trading could discourage short-term like speculative investors or are there any particular policies which a government could use to perhaps reduce the volatility of share prices in general? Yeah, this topic came up after the financial crash. Um, there was a proposal, um, it was called the Tobin tax, to, to bring in a, a tax on every financial transaction. So I think it has been instituted in some of the markets in, um, in, in the general sort of uh, City of London financial market. So I think one or two might have um, had a, a, a slight tax. Um, they've certainly proposed, I know the Europeans wanted to impose it and the City of London was against it because it would impact most of the financial trades in the City of London. Um, it would definitely limit some trades. If you have a tax of X percent on a, on a transaction, and the tax is greater than the profit margin on the transaction, that transaction will not be done. So that would ob obviously in itself limit transactions. So it would work. Count counterpoint is, you, you know, government intervention, you get government failure. It might, it would lead to a, a, 
maybe less liquidity and a close down in some markets, lots of job losses in some markets. Does it achieve anything? Maybe, hard to say, it would raise revenue, it would reduce some trading. Is that a bad thing? Probably not. You know, it reduces unnecessary trading. Most financial trading is just for speculation. It, it doesn't really make a material difference to the lives of most people. Yeah, that's, that's really good as well. Um, so Mr. Davis, what do you think is the future for financial markets? Do you think that like stock markets will continue to grow infinitely? Uh, no, they won't grow infinitely. Um, the, the volatility we've got at the moment is no more, vol it's actually probably less volatile than we've seen uh, over most periods of time. I mean, volatility changes in itself. Um, so uh, we've had the odd bit of volatility recently, but on, on the whole, we're, we're, we're quite stable in the last few months of just generally trotting out. One of the problems is we, it, the concentrated movements of certain big stocks, like the, what they're called the FANGs, the, the, which is the, the abbreviation for the, the big tech stocks in America. They are so big that they, they are the ones that are moving. Most other stocks aren't moving very much. Um, is it going to continue? Um, stock, stock markets are at risk because we've, we are at very high valuations and there is always a risk that the um, valuation will sort of revert back towards a mean valuation over t at some point in time, which means we don't really have a lot of upside, especially as interest rates are as low as they can go. And if we have in interest rates going up and inflation, we're probably going to see um, a sell-off in bond markets and stock markets from where we are, because we're at super high levels at the moment. So that, that is, is, is more likely than not, probably. All right, so that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much, Mr. Davis, for coming on to the show. Thank you very much. Good questions. That's it for this episode of Let's Get Fiscal. But if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.